Welcome to the South Mims U podcast. <coughs> oh, um, I'm sorry. Uh, just a little tickle in my throat. Don't worry, I'm fine. Actually, I'm known for being an extremely healthy person, which is why the subject of this episode is a little ironic. It's about hypochondria. It's defined by many as a mental disorder, a condition in which a person is excessively and unduly worried about having a serious illness. And it's always a serious illness. So, for instance, that little cough, if I was a hypochondriac, I might think it was a sign that I had something terribly wrong with my lungs, that I may have a respiratory disease, that I was about to waste away and die with undue haste. It's over. I'm finished. Luckily, I'm not like that. I don't suffer from hypochondriasis. Uh, that's the medical term for it. And it's to our medical school here at South Mims that we must turn for some path-breaking research into that condition. On the line is Dr Lockwood Pretty John. Actually, it's Prejean. It's spelt as if you should say it Pretty John, but it's, it's Norman, you yeah. Norman, as in William the Conqueror. Sir Lercival Prejean was King William's master of the stool. He was in charge of his stool? I suppose he could have just sit anywhere he wanted to, right? I mean, didn't need a stool. I mean, don't you mean Percival? No, Lercival, an ancient name, and being a master or groom of the stool is to be an intimate member of the uh, uh, inner chamber during the monarch's uh, ablutions and also privy to the secrets of state via his stool, which was examined each day for signs of health and destiny. All from a stool in the privy? Indeed. Enough of my lineage. I thought we were talking about the serious subject of hypochondria. Oh, yes. Sorry, sorry. Yes, we are. Yeah. <coughs> uh, for forgive me. I've just got a, a bit of a tickle. <coughs> <coughs> dear, oh dear. Well, are you well enough to do the interview? Oh, no, no, yes, I'm fine. Uh, well, uh, I don't think I'm feeling too well myself, actually. <coughs> oh, isn't that one of the symptoms of hypochondria? There is only a perception of symptoms. <coughs> and isn't it right that one of the signs that you are a hypochondriac is that other people's symptoms or illnesses trigger the idea that you too have the same illness and then... Similar symptoms begin to manifest themselves in the hypochondriac. Are you okay to continue? <coughs> <coughs> Forgive me. I'll just text my doctor for an appointment. Let's continue. OK, I read the introduction to your book, Dr Prejean. Ah, yes. My latest volume, I'm Not Feeling Well. Yes, it's a path-breaking study. It marks the opening of our global institute of hypochondria. Isn't the affliction in the province of psychiatry? Well, that used to be the general consensus, but here at South Mims we think that it deserves its own school of study. Let's face it, the subject is huge and the source of significant economic activity, which is becoming increasingly important in academic circles. Well, how significant? Well, extremely significant. The big bucks are in phantom illnesses. Now, you've heard of the placebo effect. Yes, a patient is given a sugar pill and they believe it's making them better. Indeed. And there's also the nocebo effect. Oh. 
uh, which is the opposite. You give them a sugar pill and then tell them of potential side effects and the susceptible among them, the uh, hidden hypochondriacs, begin to feel one, well, all of them. But have you read the beginning of Jerome K. Jerome's Three Men in a Boat, uh, earlier 20th century comic novel? No, I haven't, actually. Well, one of the characters spends an afternoon idly reading a home doctor volume, and by the end of it, he has the symptoms of every disease listed in it, except housemaid's knee. What's housemaid's knee? Uh, that's uh, tennis elbow for the poor, only it's in the knees. But that's fiction, isn't it? I mean, aren't we talking about the real world? <coughs> you should get that cough checked, dear boy. My doctor is a saint. Dr. Anatharina Rampadida Pontharaba Lopez. Uh, he's from Sri Lanka, mixed parentage. Tamil and Cuban, very gentle bedside manner. Oh, well, I mean, it's just, it's just a tickle, like I said. That's what my cousin Malcolm said, and he was dead before breakfast. Or was it after breakfast? The breakfast didn't kill him. The mystery tickle in his throat, which he ignored, did. I, I'm, I'm not worried. Up to you. Now, I'm feeling a little chesty. I've long suspected TB or maybe consumption. Well, aren't they the same thing? Ah, it depends on the setting. TB in the slums, consumption in the boudoirs of high-class French whores. I'm thinking of Camille, La Dame or Camillias by Alexander Duma. Many films made of it. Greta Garbo et al. and the opera La Traviata 2. Did she suffer from hypochondria? Uh, Camille, I mean. In my opinion, she did. It's one of the chapters in my book, which is a study of fictional diseases in, uh, well, fiction. Are you familiar with Sherlock Holmes? Conan Doyle's detective, yes. I mean, who isn't? I call it the symptom that does bark in the night. Holmes does not exist, but he is such a vivid character that he seems as if he does. An exact reflection of illnesses experienced by hypochondriacs. Vivid, but imaginary. Symptoms imagined for illnesses that don't exist. I have another big chapter on plastic surgery. But that's real, isn't it? The surgery is, but in many cases the need does not. Think of someone who becomes obsessed with, uh, for instance, uh, the nose. Their nose. They may think it's the wrong shape. From anyone else's point of view, the nose is fine. But its owner may think, for a reason unknown to others, I don't like it. When they look in the mirror, they see nothing but the nose. They pay a fortune to have it altered. And there are huge sums of money involved in plastic surgery. Well, that is certainly true, but it's a psychiatric condition. I mean, it's body dysmorphia. In extreme cases, yes. But for most of us, the question is, is it vanity or hypochondria? You see, the margins are confused. That's what makes it interesting. So you're saying that they are fictional afflictions and diseases? I am saying that, yes. OK, well, name a fictional disease. Lycanthropy, werewolfism. But isn't that, I mean, isn't that real? Do you believe in werewolves? Well, obviously not, but I thought the disease, the delusion, was real. Well, either people turn into werewolves or they don't. Well, don't lycanthropes think they turn into werewolves? Well, there you go, you see. You're not quite sure what it is or what you believe. And suppose you were out alone and lost at night on Dartmoor and the moon was full and you heard a howling. What would you think then? Not in your head, but in your heart, hmm? That's why our department is here. It's the inevitable grey area. According to legend, when a werewolf bites you, you turn into a werewolf. But werewolves do not exist. 
but there is a state of mind where they do. Complicated, isn't it? It isn't confined to wolves, actually. Some people think they change into cats. I'm going to get two books out of that. So um, this is fictional hypochondria you're talking about, not real hypochondria. Well, I like your serious hacking cough. It's real, but not real. Well, I don't have a serious hacking cough. It could be the Red Death. <laughs> That's ridiculous. I mean, does that even exist? Edgar Allan Poe. He was a great hypochondriac, in my opinion. He wrote The Mask of the Red Death, and some thought it was a real disease, a variation of the Black Death. Well, there's scarlet fever, isn't there? Oh, yeah, yes, indeed. I had it last week. You did? Well, that's a real disease, and mentioned in many books. Yes, I, I know it's real. Yes, if you've really got it. But many people believe they have it when they don't have it. But uh, you actually did have it last week? I was read as a B-troop, delirious with fever, but that might have been the port. Overdid it at Uncle Toby's 90th. Anyway, on to the most important fictional condition. I have a whole chapter on swooning. Fainting? I prefer swooning. It sounds so much more interesting. Let me read you something to give you a better idea. <coughs> this is a steamy Victorian novel by Victoria Lagarde called Jasmine of the Rectory. I'll read you some. <coughs> Jasmine was alone in the withdrawing room, attending to her needlepoint, when Sir Inigo, unannounced, swept into the room. Benjamin, usually at his side, was nowhere to be seen. It was a maid's afternoon off, and Jasmine realised, with a start, that she and Sir Inigo were alone in the house. He plucked at his greatcoat, reached into his waistcoat pocket, and withdrew a parchment. Smiling cruelly, he waved it before her, crying, Here it is! A certified copy of the codicil you thought went down with the wreck of the Hyperion. Her eyes fixated on the parchment, and widening in horror and disbelief, Jasmine fell into a deep swoon. So obviously, if that exact same scene had been played out in a modern soap opera, Jasmine would have said something like, You bastard, Inigo, you'll never get away with pulling a stunt like that. I'm going to smack you all in the mouth, you tosser. Or some such. Um, would she have swooned? I mean, in, in the modern soap? No, she would not have swooned. At some point in the last 150 years, the swooning faded. Literature and drama were de-swooned, which suggests, of course, that it was not a real condition. Well, wait a minute. I, I thought all of that swooning was brought about by the tight stays they wore, you know, the, those whalebone corsets. Indeed, but fainting was often a faint, <laughs> wordplay there, a means of distraction or of getting out of tight situations. You just swooned. <clears throat> of course the corsets were tight, but many who did not wear one swooned too. Um, really? It happened in the Middle Ages too, and damsels in the Arthurian legends were also prone to fainting fits. Yes, but is that hypochondria? It's a precursor to hypochondria. My colleague here in the Institute, Euphemia Scart, has written on fainting as a feminine defence mechanism, which is not as needed as much now as it was in the past. Now women confront chauvinists with pride and the law behind them, and a sharp kick or punch or a lawsuit. So, no need to swoon? Indeed, no need to swoon. And we don't have daybeds anymore. Oh, daybeds? What's that got to do with it? Well, you need something to swoon onto. 
It's really just another word for sofa. Victorian poets, for example, male ones, would stay in bed till about 11 in the morning and then move to the day bed, usually situated in the withdrawing room, where they would recline limply and write their verse. If the lady of the house were to faint or swoon, she would be led to the daybed to recline and would recover there. <coughs> Anecdotally, there were very few occasions when a lady would swoon while climbing craggy and potentially painful rock formations or exploring groves of cacti. A nice, soft landing ground had to be easily accessible. But surely a fair amount of swooning must have just happened... Out of doors? Not often in the rain. Too many puddles. And usually close to a stoutly built fellow who would be able to catch her in his arms. A swoon would occur quite slowly, giving attendant males plenty of time to prepare themselves to feel the patient. I see. So if it wasn't the corsets, what would bring about the swoon then? Well, that was up to the lady involved, of course, and the image she was trying to project. She could pretend to be shocked by an item of news she had just heard, or maybe if her image were one of a very morally respectable woman, a profanity uttered in her proximity might do it. Or even a bare table leg. <laughs> Are those table leg stories actually true, though? Well, apparently there were one or two cases. And what happened once they had swooned onto that daybed? Well, the attendant chaps would uh, attend to her. Smelling salts were popular. The ladies would often carry them in their bags. Fainting was absolute boom for the doctors. For a start, this was before the NHS, so everything was chargeable. And it was so easy. If a lady had swooned and a doctor was called, all he had to do, basically, was sit with her on a nice, comfortable daybed and soothe her with his salts. Are you suggesting that rich Victorian women pretended to be ill in order to be attended to by doctors? No, no. Though there is evidence that younger, better-looking, unmarried doctors were called out to swoons more often than older married ones. Really? Evidence for that actually exists? It does. And then along came electricity and the means of soothing a lady via massage could be uh, mechanised. You're joking. I am not. There were electric um, massages that you plugged in. Massages? Yes, massages. Are you sure they were um, massages? I am certain. OK, uh, fascinating. But haven't we strayed rather a long way from hypochondria? Indeed, and you started it. But not at all, really. It's the study of non-existent illnesses. And I think my book will demonstrate that the swoon was entirely self-generated and became a social phenomenon. But actually, I think modern women are missing a trick. I mean, personally. Imagine you're in an embarrassing social situation or you've just been caught shoplifting or something like that. All you have to do is faint while you're thinking of a way out. It buys you time. I think it should make a comeback. Well, isn't that a tad sexist? It is. Well, how about man flu, then? I've got two chapters on that. Right, a man gets a sniffle and complains and it's called man flu. You see, a man needs to be seen to heroically suffer. Saying, I have a cough, isn't nearly as dramatic as saying, I have flu. And you can have time off work as well with flu. And of course, the older a man is, the more he can refuse to do things he doesn't want to do. Due to a bad back, bad legs, weak heart, shortness of breath and so on. Endless possibilities. Great with food, if you don't like Auntie Nelly's rock cakes... Just say they aggravate your colitis. And Dr. Anatha Sarah Tula Gomez says no. 
Um, I think that's a different doctor to the one you mentioned before. Indeed, she administers my regular colonic irrigations. A good flush every week does wonders for the body. She's here now. Oh, all right. No, don't worry. Uh, We won't be long. I'd just like to ask you if what you've described is truly hypochondria. Read the book. Though, if you have any leanings towards hypochondria yourself, you'll feel a lot worse after you've read it. Well, why is that? Because I have to give a list of common, real or imagined symptoms. And if you have a tendency towards the hypochondriacal, you will be convinced that you have them, and therefore that you are ill. But I'm afraid there's no way around it. Well, I intend to read it, and I'm no hypochondriac. Good. How do you feel at the moment? Oh, fine. Except a faint sensation in my left ear. Well, don't read chapter three, then. Why not? Just don't. No, no, seriously, why not? Seriously, just give it a miss. Why, Doctor? No reason in particular. Uh, I think you should end the interview now. My treatment is about to start. Well, no, but please tell me why about my ear. Sorry. Oh, well, well, that was fascinating, if a little unsettling. Well, thank you for listening. (coughs) And, um... Oh, can you hear that? I'm, I'm, there's definitely some sort of hum. I, I think it's on the recording. Uh, it's not in my head. Um, uh, is Can you hear it? Uh, oh, anyway, please check out our other episodes and, and stay well, if you can. <coughs> uh, that, that's a ringing sound. That's definitely... Oh, oh my... Oh, dear. I, I, I don't feel well. <coughs>